Good afternoon. Welcome to the Eco News Report, KHSU's weekly program covering environmental issues that matter most on the North Coast and in our bioregion. I'm your host this week, Jennifer Kalt, Director of Humboldt Baykeeper. And today my guest is Randy Klein, a local hydrologist who's here to talk about low flows in North Coast streams. The ways that we manage or fail to manage our impacts on the land have left many rivers and creeks without enough water year-round to sustain flows for fish and other wildlife. In many streams, low flows result in high temperatures, concentrating pollutants, increasing toxic algae blooms, and climate change is intensifying droughts and changing rainfall patterns. All of this is threatening the survival of native salmon species that people have relied on since time immemorial. So, Randy, thanks so much for being here on the Eco News Report. Glad to be here. Thank you, Jen. Before we launch in, I want to announce some Baykeeper news. Last week, the state of California issued an official fish advisory for Humboldt Bay for the first time, using data from Humboldt Baykeeper's recent study of mercury in fish and shellfish, although the advisory only addresses fish at this point. It addresses eight species of fish, some of which are safe to eat up to seven times a week and only leopard shark is unsafe to eat in any amount. The one people want to really watch out for, especially for children and women of childbearing age, is lingcod, which is safe to eat one time a week, one serving a week. For more information on that, you can visit our website. And to receive news and events, announcements about Humboldt Bay issues and coastal issues, you can send us an email at alerts at humboldtbaykeeper.org. And you can follow us on Facebook. So, Randy, thanks so much for being here today. So, you are a hydrologist, and you've been working on the North Coast for more than 40 years as a hydrologist. That's correct. I moved here in 1979 to go to HSU in the, what they had then as the master's program in watershed management. And soon into grad school, I was lucky enough to get a job working for Redwood National Park as a technician part-time while I was working on my thesis my thesis happened to be on a project in Railroad National Park on watershed restoration effects. And that led to a permanent job as a geologist. And I studied mostly water and stream flow and sediment transport. And it was all focused on the effects on fish. So you started that work. And was this in Redwood Creek? It was in Redwood Creek and mostly in the tributaries, less so in the main stem. Uh-huh. So that would have been not long after the expansion of Redwood National Park in 1978 that added the whole Redwood Creek watershed, is that right? That's correct, and it's what launched the watershed restoration program at the park, which consists primarily of decommissioning old logging roads that were sediment threats to the streams. Right, because it was former timber company lands that was turned into National Park, and so a lot of it had been clear-cut in fairly recent times. Yeah, and the road networks were extremely dense, and then the skid trail networks in between the roads to yard the logs with bulldozers were just so intense that almost every square inch of ground had some kind of disturbance. There's been quite a bit of, you know, public, like, talks and photographs. The Clark Museum has an exhibit because it's the 50th anniversary of that expansion, and so... It's been pretty amazing to see, you know, some of the aerial photos from that time of the lands that were just so heavily clear-cut. And it's it's really quite remarkable to take that land and turn it into a national park 
And, you know, I, I do quite a bit of field work for the fisheries restoration grant program. And so we see a lot of the methods that were developed by you and your colleagues at Redwood National Park being applied all over California, really, to restore salmon habitat. Yeah, it was really uh, in the early days a laboratory for how to go about that kind of work. And I have to say, I wasn't really one of the people designing or conducting the work. I was doing the monitoring. We monitored the effects of various restoration techniques to see how we could minimize the downstream effects because restoration in itself is also a ground disturbance. And so mulching rates to prevent surface erosion and designing stream crossing excavations was my focus, both in my job and in my master's thesis. Very cool. So so for most of your career, you worked on floods, sediment, erosion, control, that sort of thing, but you shifted to working on these low flow issues, particularly in the Matoll with Sanctuary Forest. Yeah, I had the pleasure for oh, probably 14 years now working with Tasha McKee of Whitethorn, who's with Sanctuary Forest, and various people working with her. Most lately, Katrina Nystrom, who left Sanctuary recently and is now enrolled as a grad student at HSU. But Tasha is an incredibly inventive person, a real astute person in terms of applied science, and dedicated to really fixing the problems in the upper Matoll. And the early days started out with them doing some watershed restoration like the park did, road decommissioning. And then since then, it's because of a recognition of the low flow problem, drying up streams in the summertime, the focus has shifted towards finding ways to improve those low flows, mostly by affecting water users, reducing water use or water withdrawals from the creeks during the driest times of the year. Right. So we're going to basically cover, you know, the the causes for the low flows, why it matters, and then talk about solutions that people have been applying to those problems. But, you know, basically, there's so many different causes. Why don't we start with that? I mean, that's, you know, really kind of a case study of cumulative effects in terms of all the different impacts that are affecting these streams. Yeah, it's a classic cumulative effects problem. All these things interacting and and working together to worsen the low flow problem. And we know there's a low flow problem because if you look at rainfall patterns in the past decade or even 15 years, there's been a real downward trend. Some years, a recent year only had 20% of normal rainfall, and a lot of years fell well below normal. Only one or two in the past decade have been actually at or above normal rainfall. And that in turn affects low flows. The flows in the lower Matoll, as we know from the Petrolia stream gauge operated by the U.S. Geological Survey, the seven-day low flow has decreased by about 25% over the long-term record in recent years. Wow. And so it's a serious problem. 25% is really a huge drop in flows, especially with the seasonality of flows we have here. Flows were already getting low naturally in the summertime, but now that's just gotten worse. And are the peak flows declining as well, or are they, are they changing? The peak flows are pretty much holding steady, although we've had a sort of a, not a drought, but a period of low flood flows as well in recent years. It's hard to attribute that to climate change, but I, I really see that the low flows are most affected by that and multiple other factors. So since I've started in on the causes, climate change being one, other ones are the change in the median or mean tree age on the landscape. Timber harvest is far better today than it was decades ago. 
But still, when you have a lot of areas that are recently cut, in particular by clear-cutting methods, you temporarily increase the summer low flows when there's no trees evapotranspirating. But when the forest starts to grow back, it's very young and very dense. And studies have shown that young, dense stands of trees on a per-unit area basis, say per acre, use a lot more water than, say, large old-growth trees or even advanced second-growth trees that are less dense, fewer trees per acre. So if you look at Google Earth or air photos of this part of the world, you can see that there's a lot of areas where there's very young forests and they're taking more than their share of water and the effects are felt during the low flow period. Water withdrawals, that's another big issue. We've had what has been referred to as the green rush where the number of cannabis operations has increased almost exponentially in the last 10 years or so. And they all need water, some more than others. And so there's a lot of what we call straws in the creek, where a pump has the intake located right in the stream, taking water out. And if you have one or two of those in an area, it's not so bad. The stream can handle that. But combined with climate change and the other things that reduce water availability, you can dry up a stream pretty quick when you have too many of those. And that would include wells that are near, near the stream channel, right? not just straws in the creek directly. That's correct. When you're, you have a well adjacent to a stream, say on a floodplain or a terrace, you're taking water out from the aquifer alongside the stream, and that inevitably has an effect on the stream flow because whereas typically groundwater flows from the floodplain towards the creek, you can reverse that, and the water starts to flow from the creek bed towards the pump. So what about changes in the stream beds themselves? I mean, all of these different processes, the the timber harvest, the erosion, landslides, grading related to all kinds of, you know, road building and, and cannabis cultivation and everything else that goes on. The stream channels themselves change quite a bit. Yeah, there's almost two modes to that issue. One is that past logging effects put millions and millions of cubic yards of gravel and soil into the streams. And a lot of stream reaches still exhibit the effects of that today. They have done what we call a graded, which is the net deposition of gravel in a stream bed has increased, elevating the stream bed elevation. So that can mean that so much more of the water available at low flows is flowing subsurface than on the surface, which of course reduces surface flow for fish. Another issue is that back in the 70s, then the California Department of Fish and Game had a well-intended program of pulling wood out of streams, thinking that almost any piece of wood was a fish barrier. And so that wood that used to hold back a lot of gravel and basically maintained the streambed aquifer was lost in many areas, in particular the upper Matoll. It's down to bedrock in many areas. And also by lowering the streambed, you reduce the connectivity between the stream and the floodplain. So you have less overbank flows, and those were important because when, when the creek floods and the water inundates those areas, it soaks into the aquifer and replenishes streamside aquifers. So it's a two-pronged problem, and it really isn't solving itself very fast without some human intervention. Well, and then add to that, you know, we've seen a number of floodplain development projects being approved by the county planning commission recently, and... You know, one of them is the asphalt plant at Big Lagoon, which is, you know, supposedly temporary, but, you know, five years, is that a temporary project? You know, 
it could be extended indefinitely, no doubt. And that was originally the, the applicant's plan was to have it be an, an indefinite, you know, a permanent feature on that site. Another one is the proposed cannabis factory that would have been on the Mad River floodplain near our drinking water supply, which turned out to be so controversial that it was withdrawn. But then a couple weeks ago, the County Planning Commission approved one on the floodplain of the Van Dusen River, which would be a massive cannabis nursery distribution processing extraction facility for serving all the hundreds and hundreds of farms that are, you know, out in the Dinsmore area. And so continuing to put all these developments in the floodplain, not only are you putting people and property at risk, but you're also interrupting the natural benefits of of the floodplain that you were just talking about. Yeah, we always have to be very careful how we develop floodplains. Inevitably, when you put capital investments onto floodplains, they require protection in the form of levees. And that reduces the connectivity of floodplains to their channels, and therefore the you know it can reduce the rejuvenation of aquifers seasonally because you don't have as much area to infiltrate water. So it's something to be very cautious about. Thankfully, we have a lot of floodplains that are more or less under agriculture. And, but even then, with levees in the way, like you see all along the lower Mad River, you know, it's reduced the connectivity, and, and that has to have some effect on groundwater rejuvenation each year. Right. So you you specifically studied the Matol River, but these low flow problems are, are rampant in the Eel and the Van Dusen Rivers. And also, even though the Mad River has a lot of water that's being released into the main stem, a lot of the tributaries have this low flow problem. And that's often where the coho refugia are, where they can hang out in those little tributaries either during high water events or when the temperatures in the main stem are getting higher or that sort of mm-hmm. thing. And so the disconnection of those tributaries into the main stem is a big problem for fish, right? Yes. Before we move on from the Mad River, I have had many opportunities to be out on the Mad River when the Chinook are migrating upstream. And the only thing that allowed them enough water depth to get over some of those shallow riffles was the fact that the Humboldt Bay Municipal Water District was releasing water from Ruth Lake. Had that not been the case, those fish would have been stranded in pools downstream and subject to poaching and disease and all the other problems associated with being stuck somewhere. Same thing happens in the Lower Eel, although the dam, Pillsbury Dam, is so far upstream it, it probably is having not a huge effect way down by Fortuna. But Fortuna, part of the Eel River, has come into the news lately a few times this past summer and a couple summers ago for going dry at one point near Fortuna. And so it's, you know, all the little streams that are being dewatered must have an effect downstream all the way to the ocean. And so what you're talking about is Chinook salmon being cut off from making it to their spawning areas. They can't, they can't spawn in these big high flow lower main stem areas, can they? They can and they do. The success of those, what we call reds or salmon nests, is, is a little bit problematic because they can be easily be washed away by high flows during the subsequent winter. Right. So basically cutting the salmon off from being able to travel the full length of the, of the watershed up into the upper reaches to the spawning areas where they can have more success spawning is a huge problem. Also, the the concentration of pollutants, the less water there is, if you're putting in the same amount of pollutants, it just 
logically follows that the water that's left is going to have a higher concentration of those pollutants. And it's also going to be warmer, which makes things more difficult, especially for coho. And then on top of all that, we're seeing these increases in toxic algae blooms. You know, we are both from the Midwest where, you know, people growing up in the 60s and 70s kind of took it for granted that you had to be really careful what water body you went swimming in. Whereas Californians have never really, Northern Californians have never really had to deal with that. And we're seeing now many, many of our local waterways, the rivers, Big Lagoon, other places where, you know, there's so much algae, people are afraid to bring their dogs. And, you know, there's the potential for harming, you know, small children if people, you know, don't know to keep them away from the algae. And I understand that a dog died this summer at Richardson Grove in the Eel River. And so, you know, this is just continuing to to happen in various rivers, all the way from the Russian River to the Klamath, which has experienced it for for decades. But, you know, it's a problem all over the western U.S. and Canada. It's not just here in Northern California, but it's it's shocking, Mm -hmm. you know, that... To think that people are afraid to go swimming in the summertime is is really disturbing. If I could just speak a little bit to that issue. I had the privilege of working for Redwood National Park for all those years. And one of the best parts of it was I uh, ran a hydrologic monitoring program. And it included a couple virtually pristine watersheds. Little Lost Man Creek and Upper Prairie Creek. And I was just stunned by, number one, the, the amount of flow they had in the summertime compared to other creeks that had been managed and the coolness of the water and the low concentration of pollutants like turbidity and other things that it was just a privilege to see that and really it's the only place in this part of the world where you get to see how streams really functioned in the absence of human development Hmm. yeah i was interested to see a couple years ago during the 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 peak of the drought hollow tree creek in mendocino county Hmm was, you know, it's in the middle of really hammered timberlands, industrial timberlands, and very few residents in the entire watershed, and so no, really no diversions to speak of. And it had more water in it that was cooler and more juvenile coho, you know, all kinds of aquatic insects. It was pretty amazing to see. And then the other stream that summer that I saw that had a lot of water was Mill Creek in the in Del Norte County, which mm-hmm. is you know also recently industrial timberlands that were purchased by Save the Redwoods League and added to the state park system. Mm-hmm. So really stunning the amount of impact that human activities today, not just past, are having on these watersheds. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Eco News Report. I'm your host, Jen Colt with Humboldt Baykeeper, and I'm speaking with Randy Klein, hydrologist who has studied low flows on the Matole River, as well as many other rivers on the North Coast. So why don't we shift now to talk about the solutions, because we know many things we can do. You know, as you said earlier, a lot of these waterways have abundant water supplies during the rainy season. So what can people do and what is being done, especially by Sanctuary Forest, to address the low flow problems? Well, Sanctuary Forest has gotten into monitoring the hydrology of of the upper Matole watershed above Whitethorn. And you can do some things to help the low flow problem without monitoring data, but you can't be targeted very well. 
in these times of limited money and time, you know, because it's an urgent problem, monitoring data can direct you to the most effective way to deal with these problems. And so they've been collecting low flow data for quite some time. And the Salmonid Restoration Federation, led by Dana Stolzman, has also been begun collecting water flow data in Red, Redwood Creek, tributary of the South Fork Eel at Redway. And so both of these programs have yielded a wealth of information that has informed not just how to go about increasing flows in those watersheds, but it's been kind of a model for, you know, <laughs> that should be multiplied elsewhere on the North Coast. And one thing that Tasha McKee started oh, probably 10 years ago now was what's called a forbearance program. And that is a program where people can voluntarily sign up to basically cede part of their water right, riparian water users. And in doing so, they agree to stop pumping from the creek when a certain indicator place where they measure flow near Whitethorn drops to a certain flow rate. And so that's called a forbearance period. And they sign away part of their water right, and in exchange they get subsidized to have increased their water storage through some pretty large storage tanks. We're talking some of them now are 50,000 or 100,000 gallons. And so these people uh, have agreed to be in this program voluntarily, and Tasha sends out the word, they shut off their pumps. And that has been a, a really a direct and immediate benefit for the watershed. In fact, through the length of the period, uh, something like, I think, 5 million gallons of storage have been added through the forbearance program. And I should add that some residents, although they might not have signed up for the forbear forbearance program, have done and put tanks in voluntarily at their own expense. So there's, you know, a pretty significant participation in this program. And the cumulative, basically, pumping capacity of all the pumps that are turned off through for forbearance amounts to about half of a cubic foot per second. That's a unit we use commonly in stream flow. And half a cubic foot per second is a lot of water to juvenile salmon holding in these pools throughout the summer. So it's been a, a very successful program. And Tasha, being the person she is, very creative and innovative, has, has started on some other sort of ventures to help the low flow problem. And these are trying to put wood back into the streams of the upper Matoll, these bedrock streams now that the, the gravel has been exported, put wood back in and recruit gravel and thereby increase the aquifer storage. And part of that program also includes restoring connectivity with the floodplain and, and then delaying the floodplain waters from flowing back into the creek so that they can have more time to infiltrate and replenish the aquifer alongside the stream. Right, so this the idea of putting wood back in the stream has been done all over the North Coast and was recently in the news. The Yurok tribe did a massive project on the South Fork Trinity where they used helicopters to place the logs oh. and the and the root wads into the water into the banks of the stream and the the channel and the idea is what you slow the water down and thereby you're creating pools and riffles rather than these sort of straight bowling alleys that streams have developed into. Yeah, most wood addition to streams has been focused on fish habitat, creating pools and, and more complex habitat for both adults and juveniles. But what Tasha is doing has a slightly different aim. Mm. It's to recruit gravel, to build up the stream aquifer volume or capacity so that more water is stored in the stream bed for later release during the low flow time. So is that the same sort of placing wood in the stream channel, or is it something different? It's in the stream channel and adjacent to the stream, and to really sort of disperse the water over a larger area 
so that more water will infiltrate. How does that recruit gravel? Well, that the floodplain work doesn't recruit gravel. It's only in-stream, in-channel placement of wood that does that by creating log steps where there once was a boulder or a bedrock bowling alley. You create these steps, and behind each step is you know a, f- a few to a few tens of cubic yards of new gravel sitting there and adding to the aquifer. So it gets trapped rather than washing downstream. Yes, I see. So something else that that can help with these low flow problems is better forest management. So thinning, basically thinning or harvesting the younger trees so that there's fewer young trees evaporating all that water. Yeah, forest thinning and, and promotion of you know, more mature trees on the landscape is, is going to have a benefit. On the other hand, where you have extensive areas of clear cutting, which really still happens today, depending on where you look, only you know keeps postponing you know having that factor be not as big a factor in low flows and what about just more efficient water use well that's huge i mean we all know this living in california especially low flow shower heads arid landscaping around your house all those things have pretty much been drilled into most people well when you have a rural water user who has a pump in a creek and he tops off his tank, but then when the tank's full, it spills onto the ground and evaporates in the hot weather of southern Humboldt. That water's lost. It's wasted. And fixing leaks and making sure the pump shutoff mechanisms work well and using drip irrigation wherever you can is really going to help the issue. So we just have a few minutes left. Is there anything else that you want to talk about where people can go to get more information? Yeah, the uh, Samana Restoration Federation website has some pretty cool articles in it. And a really neat feature is that they plot their flow measurements as they're brought in from the field. So you can look at this year's flows at a variety of sites in Redwood Creek down in Southern Humboldt and see what's happening to your creek or some creek you care about. And a wealth of other things on their website talking about their programs. And Sanctuary Forest, they have lots of field tours of the projects, and they're announced, I think, through their mailing list. And these are some pretty interesting things to go look at, um, the innovations taking place. And I think one of the latest thrusts of, of restoration is to create, you know, essentially like beaver ponds without the beavers, because those things back up the water, hold back some of the flows, so they're sitting on top of the ground longer and have more time to infiltrate and restore the aquifer. So beavers are good for the rivers. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) And we still see them around here. They're not as extensive as they used to be, but um, you can go out to places along the Mad River and find beaver activity. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I saw a beaver dam on the lower part of Widow White Creek, right where it flowed into the main stem Mad River some years ago. I think it was in 2005 or 6, something like that, when the Mad River mouth was south of Widow White Creek. Mm -hmm. So Widow White Creek at that point would be flowing into the into the river right you know in the shallows there where the river turned to Mm -hmm. the south and i was pretty surprised to see that they had mowed down a bunch of alders Mm -hmm. and and sedges and dragged them all around and it was it was pretty wild to see that right there on the mad river yeah just like everybody says they are busy and uh, they can (laughs) make a lot of changes in a little period of time (laughs) they sure can (laughs) 
All right. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Randy. People can go to the KHSU archives, the Eco News archives page, and you'll see links to Salmonid Restoration Federation and Sanctuary Forest and some other bits of information if you want to read more about what we've been talking about here today. Thank you, Jen. This has been the Eco News Report. My name is Jennifer Kalt, and I've been your host for the past half hour. I was speaking with Randy Klein, a local hydrologist who has studied flooding, erosion, and more recently, low flow problems in North Coast streams. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. If you'd like to replay the whole interview or share it with others, you can go to the KHSU archives at khsu.org. And you can also listen on iTunes or wherever else you download podcasts. The Eco News Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Many thanks to Fred McLaughlin, as always, for engineering. Join us again next week for the Eco News Report. Mm-hmm.